All right, everybody, and welcome to this week's Yawa. We are rolling into week number two of the potential new format, and we have seen some constructive criticism, if you will. Some people saying, hey, we love binging. What is this new thing? Everybody else is saying, not everybody, but there are also people saying, we like this because it's more searchable. It's easier for us to find specifically what we're looking for. As well as they think to themselves, hey, I remember they talked about this at one point, but how do I find that Yawa again? Well, this way, each Mm -hmm. question is broken down to a title, which makes it much easier to find later on. And if you guys do enjoy the binging aspect of hearing everything we have to say at once, those are always posted on Wednesday on the podcast. If you didn't know, we have a podcast. We do the Yawas are recorded, put there from an audio standpoint, as well as we do some other interviews on occasion. We're going to try and get into more of that when we have more time, but it is something that we are moving toward. Now, just to throw this out there, we do pull all of the questions off of YouTube. We're still getting questions about that specifically. Type in the comments on any video you are watching anywhere. Yawa question. If you something pops in your brain, doesn't even have to be related to that video, just throw it down there as a comment. We will pull those out to answer here. And then how this is going to work is every day of the week, there's going to be a question answered and that will be released. They're getting posted first thing in the morning. So you got time to watch it while you're sitting, scrolling, checking things out, you know, doing your morning do- duties, if you Biz- will. Taking care Bi- of business. Taking care of it and learning about um, dog stuff. Yeah. And then there was also a concern. Somebody said, wait. Aren't you going to do any more dog training videos? Is this only going to be the content that you're posting now? Heck yeah, we are. We're always going to be posting dog training and hunting and hunting dog health related videos as well scattered throughout there. And Ethan's uh, attempts at starting a racing pigeon loft, which... Um, and Ethan and his pigeons. Ethan and his pigeons. Which I think we need Cat and her goats. Just saying. Hey. They cannot be more difficult than your dang pigeons have been. So that's all I'm saying. If you agree with me that I should get goats because Ethan has his crazy pigeon hobby now, put it in the comments below, give me a thumbs up, and vote for the goats. But I'm still going to say, if you vote for the goats, you need to be willing to come volunteer your time on the daily to take care of the goats, because otherwise it'll probably fall to me and I don't want to. So (laughs) all of those things being said, we have an extra special thing to start with here. But before we do that, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, make sure that you have notifications turned on so you don't miss any of our wacky stuff. And while Ethan's grabbing that, I just wanted to mention, I am drinking It's That Time of Year. A pumpkin spice latte. All right. If everybody else out there loves the pumpkin season, let me know. You're, you're a pumpkiner? I love um, pumpkin stuff. We got a package in the mail the other day from some of our friends from Canada. Oh, Canada. So would those be Canadian friends or Canada friends? Well, when we talk about a goose, it's like a Canada goose. It's not technically a Canadian goose. So are they Canada friends, not technically Canadian friends? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Don't either. Friends from Canada. Friends from Canada seems right. So we started to open this up and I thought, it'd be way more fun to do this here. And share the... Share the glory. Okay, so what I'm going to do actually is put the box, because we don't have as much room here. I'm going to put the box on the ground. Pull the stuff out of the box. Show off the stuff. Okay. Show and tell. To start with here, I'll hand that one to you and I'll grab the next one. Ketchup-flavored Lay's potato chips. An interesting flavor. I should have handed this one to you. Okay, we also have, so yeah, ketchup-flavored Lay's potato chips. I've never seen those before, and it must be a common thing. Yeah, you're going, you're seeing the same thing I am, okay? Ketchup, yeah, you could say that word. These are ruffles, all dressed assassones. I have no idea what that means. It's like all dressed assassins. Oh, no, it's not assassins. Assassiones? Assassiones. I don't don't know know what that means, but... um, Everything? I have definitely, maybe. I don't know. We're going to have to taste you know, and find out. A-S-S-A-I-S-O-N-N-E-E-S, and one of the E has the little, um, what is that? a Tilde or something? Is it a tilde? No, tilde's the... 
It's got a. It's got a. Ba-da, it's got a ba-da. <laughs> Whatever ba-da. that is. <laughs> um, I will say I have no idea and I have never seen these flavors of chips before. This no. must be a local thing or they would not have sent it though. That's kind of cool. A Canadian thing. We need to know. Yeah, we need to know how to pronounce this. So guys, help us out. What else? Ooh. Oh, and they all have flags on them. Flags. Yeah, it says, uh, it says made oh, in Canada. Yeah. Benny Bullies. These are dog treats. Also made in Canada. Gonna have the doggies try these out. And mm-hmm, Ethan. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, crack that bad boy open. Wait, 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 wait. What kind of treats are they? Benny Bullies liver chops. No, thank Nutritious, you. Nutritious, pure, and natural. I don't know. I'd probably eat one. Uh, then we Beef have... Beef liver flavor. Ooh. Ugh. Those things kind of, when you eat the weird ones, it's not so bad going down sometimes. It's just like uh, they sit in your gut and um, <laughs> Next, we have Tim Hortons. Uh, this is all very uh, Canada-ish stuff. It says, oh, it's all Canada yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's got the, the, the Canada and it's red bag, white. Is it a, it's a maple leaf, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. maple leaf. Um, it says roasting in Canada. Whole bean coffee. Yep, Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons, 50 years of coffee expertise. Now, the problem is when we find out how much we love these things, it's going to be very difficult to get them on a regular basis. You're like, I got to get me some more of them ketchup chips. Ketchup chips. This one's in a box. Okay. This one's in a box. Okay. These are wrapped up. Ooh, fancy. Oh, you're going to love this. <gasps> oh, maple syrup. I love real pure maple syrup. We got some from some friends in Michigan once, and that was really good, too. Okay, so we have Smarties. I didn't know that was a Canada thing. Um, See, we have Smarties, but they're different than they these. They don't look like those. No, they don't look like they're these. In the they're in long called... tubes that twist. Yeah, let's open this up and see... Do they look the same and they're just packaged differently? And I'm going to see if they taste the same. No, they kind of look more like, oh. They look like an M&M, kind of. Yeah, but are they chocolate? Mm-hmm. They're chocolate. Not the kind of Smarties we've got. Those are like those chalky, kind of tart, fruity-flavored ones. These taste very similar to an M&M. Mm-hmm. But they're slightly larger, and they're pastel-colored. Oh, we can play the color game with Aiden with these. Ooh, they've got pink and... Like purple? Yeah, he'll love that. Very we play nice. the color game with M&M's with our son, Aiden. Go ahead. A Canada coffee cup, which I absolutely love coffee cups. I might have to actually here, pour. Read I'm that gonna, one here. I'll open this one up. I'm guessing Canada. similar. They're similar size mm-hmm. They're, boxes. Well, because, okay, so it's from Starbucks, which I got one that was that said Kansas for some friends that aren't from Kansas because I was like, that's kind of cool. Um, and it's got... A whole bunch of things. There's a beaver, and there's a moose, and maple syrup, and French all things. French Canada. fries, Ooh. a hat, a hockey stick, a polar bear. Doubled up so we can be twinsies. Aww. Canada. Ooh, An it's elk. a mountie hat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bear paw, snowflake, coffee, skis. Parliament Hill. So cool. A Starbucks coffee cup. For my, <laughs> hey, I didn't even know we had Starbucks Skis. coffee cups coming, so now I'm going to put my- True North, strong and free, baby. My pumpkin spice latte can now a. go it in says my a. new cup. <laughs> a. Oh, man. So when we used to live up in North Dakota- uh, A. A. Fargo or whatever. The um, We actually didn't live in Fargo. We lived in Grand, Grand Forks. Forks. And we would have folks come down from Canada when the exchange rate was in their favor, which they probably do still some, but when the exchange rate was in their favor, they would come down and shop because it was only, you know, people that live close to the border. So, it, you know, it'd be a better, definitely a better deal. Nestle Coffee Crisps. They kind of look, look like a wafer... Kind they of do. wafery Coffee with chocolate flavored candy. Yeah, I have never seen these. This is, I mean, these definitely have to be a, a local issue. Oh, so this one says right here, Canada. Mm-hmm. Yep, Canada only. Very cool. If we weren't doing a Yawa and podcast, I would probably open one up to munch on it while I'm having my coffee, but I don't need to be crunching in your yeah, ears. Yeah, crunching. It just says, I hope uh, to Ethan and Cat. I hope you enjoyed this. 
<clears throat> Do you want this, me to read it? Honey? I'd like to try. People can have something to comment about how bad I suck at reading. Which is why Kat reads the questions. I hope you enjoy this box of Canadian treats. So the treats are categorized as Canadian. Maybe the people are as well. Hope the dogs enjoy their treats. Tim Hortons is a famous coffee brand here in Canada. The ketchup chips are not my favorite, but maybe you will enjoy them. The tar- maybe Aiden will because he loves to dip dip everything in ketchup. Yes, he does. The tart things are what we as Canadians, so they are called Canadians, uh, call butter tarts and are a staple here. So I believe these are the tarts because it was very specific that they were like wrapped up to protect them. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yep. I'll let you finish with those. Those look amazing. They gave us multiple. Thank you all. They look like they have pecans. They look like a baby pecan pie. It's kind of what it does look like. Um, I know your Called smarties are completely different, oh. but, uh, so I had to get you some of ours to try. Coffee crisps are one of, uh, our, our favorites. favorites. We had to get some maple syrup because it's Canada in a little bottle <laughs> in a little bottle. Um, anyway, hope you enjoy. Thank you Thank very you much, so guys. Much. We really, really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun to get things from different areas and try new things. We love trying new things. These little pecan pie tarts, I think, um, are going to be mine. That is what we do, uh, especially when you go to new areas. I mean, it's our go-to thing is what is local. I don't care about you got the chain steakhouse or you know whatever else. Give me something local that um, we can't find anywhere else. Yeah, when we were. Uh, when Peter and I were just up there at uh, in New York with Bob, we were headed back, and I said, we need to find some food before we get to the airport. And he pulled up, and it was like a Philly cheesesteak place. And I just walk in, you know, and that's how you order at these places. I don't know. I've never been here before. I don't know what these things are. I spent an hour reading all the things. I said, what's your famous sandwich? I mean, what's your best whatever? What does everybody order? And he said that. And we said, we'll take two. You know, I just. Yeah. Whatever it is. If it's good, bad, or indifferent, then we know. <laughs> That you've been there, tried that. Been there, tried that. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you guys very much for that. And then uh, what we're going to go ahead and do is move into some questions. All right. What do we have first? This first question is going to be a really interesting one. Don Shrew. No, excuse me. Don Shoe. This is fantastic. I have a ten and a half week old Llewellyn setter named Mac. Ooh, that, Llewellyns are pretty. That we are starting to work with a little more intensely. Our challenge is that Mac is deaf. Hmm. He is smart as all get out, already learning sit and down. But it is a challenge in timing when there is no click. Have you had any experience training deaf dogs, or can you give any pointers? Interesting. So to start this off, uh, it's awesome that you're saying. You know, it's, it's difficult in the timing aspect of things because that is the most important part of dog training. And um, also the caveat here, we do not have any experience to our knowledge. Oh, the only thing that we'd have experience with training a deaf dog would be working with grandpa. But Yeah, but that's not necessarily training a deaf dog. It's just working with a dog that's, you know, losing his hearing in his senior years, you know, because yes. he's almost 15 and he cannot hear. He's to the point now where we can't let him out unless he's wearing an e-collar or in the backyard because he'll just trot right off to visit the kennel or the bird pen and he cannot hear you and you no. have to go get him. And sometimes he's surprised that like, you're oh, there. Oh, whoa. Like, hey, he- I was just yelling at you. He's like, yeah, I didn't hear you. Couldn't hear you. So, um, but that's not necessarily in the training phases of things. It's just in the management of a senior dog type of thing. Um, So no, we don't have any experience training a young deaf dog, but we do have a lot of experience in training and the philosophies of training dogs and how important timing is. And Ethan and I were kind of, no, no, you can't eat anything during this, honey. I thought we get a little ASMR here. (sighs) That's not my thing. I don't want to hear you crunching in my ears. Well, uh, if you have looked at YouTube lately, it's a lot of people's thing. Don't care. Not my thing. <laughs> I'll just turn your headset down a little bit. Er. <laughs> um, but we have a lot of experience working through difficult situations with dogs that, you know, don't train the no, like normal path that we need to make modifications for. So this would be a situation where we're going to have to come up with a modification for that. 
And Ethan and I were kind of chatting about this um, because we read that question the other day before we were filming. And I was like, oh, we got to read that one at Inyawa. Yeah. So we've got to, I mean, realistically, you've got to come up with something to be a marker to say, yeah, that's good. And, and it's going to be, you know, essentially thinking outside the box in sense, because the normal thing, which would be a audible aspect of stuff is not going to work. So we got to think, Kat and I are talking about what, uh, what, what are the other senses? senses? Yep. Yeah. So we talked about smell. Yep. How could we do something smell related that, that would help? That's mm. which would not work necessarily timing wise because no. the smell wouldn't dissipate fast enough to keep momentum of a session going, yada, yada. So we're like, Meh, smells probably not in. Um, we talked about sight. Yep. Sight aspect of things. And I thought, well, maybe if we utilize, if you utilize like a flashlight or something to that effect as a marker, but then again, your timing is going to be off when the dog has its back to you, even though it may be exhibiting the behavior, just not looking directly at you. Yeah. Unless you did training sessions at night and you, you had somebody flipping the light switch on and off. Mm. Maybe. It's if a little you, if iffy the, and it would be really hard to generalize your training. See, if the flashlight came directly from you, though, you could build really, really good eye contact, essentially, really good front focus. So there is a potential of that. I think that yeah. it would be difficult, but it could would be, work. It would be more difficult for things where the dog is moving away from you, like towards their dog bed, because they're going to get on a bed, but they still need to see, have that visual where they can see the light coming on to mark that. The other side of it is I think it would be hard to get, like I said, it would build focus, and but it would probably be hard to get the dog to do other things other because than Because they focus. may they're get just... too focused on the light, and I was going to mention that, you know, we have seen situations of dogs becoming light neurotic with the use of laser pointers and reflection off of, you know, the back of your phone or your watch face. And then the dog's focus looking where the light came from last. Well, that could potentially happen with the flashlight as Mm -hmm. well. So we've got, you know, smell and sight, which sight was an iffy one, but we didn't really love it. Obviously hearing's out. Hearing's out. And then what's left? Touch. Touch. And that was where I said, what about using the e-collar as a marker? Um, because they could feel it no matter if they're looking at you, not looking at you. And we've always used the e-collar in a sense of reinforcement before and not as a form of positive reinforcement and using it as a marking device. So you would have to, the same with a clicker, you would have to charge the collar then and showing that the collar, the feel, the vibrate of the collar um, would be the good thing. So They'd feel the collar, get the food, feel the collar, get the food. Um, So you would be charging the collar in a positive way so that then um, when they got to you, then they'd feel the collar. Or when they got on the bed, then they'd feel the collar and they would know that that reward was coming. Now, I'm going to say right now, right, right now, this would be, this is all theory. We've not tried any of this and it would be a huge experiment that I would love to be part of if at all possible. And so that we could you guide can, you through and evaluate if it's working the way it's supposed to be working. Yes. And, and kind of help. It's going to make a huge difference. One, one way that we can work through that would be if you came out here for a consult and we're not sure not, where you're from. Yeah. I know that's not always the easiest option depending on where you are, but then the other would be through Patreon. You can set up the, the video exchange option <laughs> or even better yet would be in this situation, the live option, which allows me to live watch your training sessions and be able to give you direct feedback. Uh, yes, that's it. That's it. Nope. Now stop. We're done. That's it. No more. And, um, I I think that would be a really cool thing to be able to take part in. Yeah, for sure. So that was a really good question. It made us think a lot. It isn't a very, I guess, often asked question. Mm -hmm. Um, so we literally had to think through the alternatives and it was a really good, I guess, practice for us, really good, uh, exercise for our mental stimulation as well. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks, guys. That's all we have time for in part one. We will be back with part two very shortly and answering more questions. All right. Welcome back for part two of this week's Yawa, where we are going to jump right into answering some questions. If this is your first time to the channel or this is the first video you are finding of ours, hit the subscribe button, go back through the vast backlog of videos that we have available to you currently. 
and prepare yourself. We're going to answer some questions. So this question is from John Kendall. Hey, John. So I am not sure if they mean their German short hair or their German shepherd because it says G-S-H. That would typically be a um, German shepherd. German shepherd. Is nine months old. Racist. Well, I think auto correct a lot of times changes to that. But and let's go ahead and read and see what the context of the question is. Maybe that'll help. Yep. So, racist to retrieve and will make blind retrieves if she doesn't see me throw the dummy. Hmm. The real problem is she will wait until I reach for it and then do a couple of victory laps, then drop it near me. How do I correct it? I don't want to curb her enthusiasm, but this is annoying. Sure. Sure it is. And whether you've got a German short hair or a German shepherd, our answer will be yeah. the same yeah. um, for the retrieving aspect of things and the prating, which is really, really natural for a dog to want to do. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think to help better understand parading, we need to talk about what parading is. Yes. Parading is avoidance. Not showing off my prize. It looks like that. It feels like that. And we kind of categorize it that direction. And but it is we more. We say it all the time. Oh, look how proud they are. Of yeah, their they're retreat. parading. Da, da, da. Which it, it is. They want it and they don't want us to have it. That's, that's the down and dirty of that behavior. I would say now the next aspect of it is they get just to that. Just on the edge of reach zone. Now, Arm's that, length. Mm-hmm, and that specifically is related to spatial pressure. Now, what we end up doing, and dogs are very attuned to it, you got to think about the closest part of you, whether that's the tip of your nose or your hand here, or you're bent over and you're kind of leaning your head forward, whatever it is, they can sense those aspect of things and they're going to put that distance from that closest part of your body. Now, if you watch and you watch other people with their dogs, if you get the opportunity to do that, like we do, you're going to see, or even just working with enough dogs, you're going to see that that distance is almost identical with every single dog, which means that it is essentially an inherent ability and a natural reaction or a natural response to the spatial pressure of the handler itself. Now, ways that we can go about fixing that involve very subtle things that you can do with your body that are going to make a huge, huge, huge difference. Now, we had um, some folks come in to spend a little bit of time with their dog here just this last weekend, and we got to talk a lot about this because we were doing some basic healing work, and I'm going to actually shoot, it brought up to a point to my brain, but uh, I need to shoot a video for y'all so that you can see what I'm specifically talking about, but it was in regards to healing and the dogs coming back and movement of your feet and utilizing. And in that process, I recognize a thing that I kind of knew that I was doing, but that was the thing that I had to pass on the very subtle movement that I was making that I had to pass on to them to help them to be more successful handling their dog. So it's like, hand the dog to me. Everything happens essentially perfect. You make it look good. Yeah. It's, and they hand them and they're like, I don't know. They're not doing it quite right. Well, it's a very simple thing that when I taught them, it helped dramatically and it's all spatial pressure related. So stay tuned for the video that we're going to put out here. I'll probably do later this month about spatial pressure and movement in regards to the healing behavior itself. Now on to this question. He's specifically talking about the dog is parading with their retrieves, staying just out of arm's reach. Now, what are some ways that we can specifically help through that? So a couple of Easy tips and tricks that we typically utilize when we're developing a natural retrieve out of our puppies is um, we like to utilize tug, tug of war, mm-hmm. where the puppy then wants to bring that object back to you to continue the game. You're creating a game. Yes, essentially. Yep, you're creating a game. So they can't play tug if they don't get close enough to you to give you the object. So, so- that's a development area of things. And people always ask, well, isn't tug of war bad? I've heard that tug of war isn't a good thing to teach a puppy. Well, we're utilizing it properly and we're starting and ending the behavior and the game. Yep. Sorry, I was stretching. Oh, I thought you were like leaning over to whisper something in my ear. No, no Um, So playing a little bit of tug, which we have some videos out there showing how to properly utilize tug, um, as well as it really... um, we did a really good one with... I thought it was... Thunder. Thunder. Uh-huh. I thought it was Thunder. Yep, yep. Um, so. so doing a really good job um, 
utilizing that game, which then they want to hold onto it. So it builds a really nice natural hold during that retrieving process. They're not mm-hmm. just spitting it at your feet or dropping it and ready for the next one. Um, also when Ethan was talking about what that parading is, it's not necessarily, Oh, I'm just showing off. It's, I don't want to give this object up. So Correct. that's another thing that you can utilize in the development of your retrieve is when your puppy does come back to you, don't just yank that bumper out of their mouth and chuck it again. Okay. So before you move on to that aspect of things, okay. no, no, no. The, the game of playing a little bit of tug, that would be technically, let's think about this okay. for a second here. That would technically be, or add, is it positive? Is it reinforcement? Yeah, or is we're it, rewarding them for coming back to us okay. with that bumper. So, so we're, we're utilizing- we're a, adding this game as a, as, a reward, as a reward, essentially. So positive reinforcement. It doesn't necessarily have to be a treat. And in all honesty, we utilize, um, we don't usually utilize a treat or a yeah. food reward during retrieving because how do they eat that treat? By getting that bumper out of their mouth. And again, we want to develop a natural hold where they're not letting go of that bumper and dropping it, which then can- relate to dropping birds later on. Um, so if they're trying to get a treat, they're going to spit that bumper so they can get the treat. So we don't use treats for a positive reward, but we can use that game of tug, which most dogs absolutely love playing tug. Yep. Now, all of these things being said, these are going to be optimal conditions, right? If we can work through the way that we're talking about here, it's going to be in your best interest and ultimately the dogs. But if these things aren't working, trying some other things are important. But that's what I was kind of getting at is a lot of what we hear from people. I utilize clicker training to mark that the dog brought it back to me. But what that does is starts to develop not as good a mouth habits because they come back, they spit them. And because a clicker also ends the behavior that yep. we're trying to. Yep, 100%. Trying to develop. So. Oh, yeah. So now moving on. Sorry, that was. Okay. Just explaining what that tug of war actually is being utilized as, mm-hmm. as positive reinforcement for the completion of the recall and completion of the retrieve. Um, so then I was talking about, oh, so praising your puppy when they come back and giving them time to hold onto that bumper and not just yeah. ripping it out of their mouth so that they're rewarded for coming back to you and they understand that, hey, bringing it to mom and dad doesn't mean I'm just going to lose the object. I get I to hold on to thunder. it for some more time. Yeah. So praising them. Letting them hold that bumper. Now, if you start seeing any naughty habits arising, like munching and rolling or then spitting the bumper, you need to shorten up the amount of time that you're doing that and take it sooner so you can anticipate before those naughty habits start to arise so you can continue conditioning a nice, solid, non-mouthing, not rolling it, natural hold. So that was one other thing that I think you can go to just Thunder's playlist, babe. I was trying to figure out how to search it specifically. like Tug of war. This means war. Bah, bah, bah. Okay. Very so, first video. Yes. So if you search, if you're interested in seeing how we utilize tug as a way to develop a more natural mouth and a better natural retriever to hand, um, search standing stone tug of war. The first video that should pop up is how to play tug of war the right way with your new puppy. And we show how to develop the tug game and then incorporate standing and praise and a little micro tugs because that's going to prevent it from becoming a big issue. Not every time we have to play this big shake. Nope. Just a little bit to kind of reestablish that good grip. And then when we're done, we can take it away. So watch that video. It shows specifically what Kat's talking about with tug. So those are a couple little tips and tricks, um, as well as getting into an inviting position so that you're not creating this um, intimidating big person that the dog has to bring this bumper to. So if you get down and you're just on your haunches and you're just kind of standing there and you're not lunging and you're not reaching for your puppy, where that's making them want to, um, that spatial pressure then is pushing them further away Mm -hmm. um, and they're lunging away then from you. So you just sit there and are patient. And eventually they're going to be like, well, this is kind of boring now. And they're going to come all the way into you. The other side of it can be moving away from them, draws them in. Yeah. That was my next one. So the, the, again, with the spatial pressure aspect, I think that distance is the same. So if you start to move away from them, a, they're going to move with your movement most of the time, as well as it's bringing them closer to you, not distance wise, but it's bringing their momentum to you. And then if you kind of do, again, it's like a little dance. You're moving backwards away from them and then move forward to them and meet them. It's not a lunge, though. Keep nope. in mind, it's not a snatch and grab. Subtle movements here. Because yep, a- they'll figure that out real fast. And they're like, ah, this ain't working again, you know. Yeah, so those are all really good developmental tips and tricks 
that you can work on with your puppy for the parading aspect of things. Now, ultimately, your puppy is, I believe, nine months old is what you said. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Thunder right now, he's six months old, and we've been doing this for about the last month with him um, through collar conditioning. We've built a very solid collar condition to recall. Well, what is a retrieve? A retrieve is a dog that goes out and wants to pick something up, and then they need to bring it back. That's the second half of the retrieve. Correct. So that second half of the retrieve is just the recall with the object still in their mouth. So you need to build some momentum, make sure that they're super comfortable with the collar, that the collar isn't only used every great once in a while, and then it startles them because they haven't had it used forever. Um, So you build some momentum in those sessions, do some retrieves, and then once that bumper's in their mouth, vibrate all the way back to you. They try and avoid, which if you watch in one of our more recent videos with Thunder doing the bumper launcher... Mm-hmm. He was doing a little avoidance, a little parading, if you will, with the bumper launcher Correct, bumper. he was. And I was utilizing that e-collar to get a better, more direct return to me. There were, you know, there was one person running the camera. Ethan was helping with the bumper launch or holding thunder. I was running the bumper launcher. So there were multiple people out there too as, you know, distractions. Who should I go to, you know? Um, and so I was able to, by the end of that session, get a very direct retrieve straight back to me like we wanted to see out of him. And that was just utilizing the e-collar consistently and holding the button until he got all the way to me, things like that. Absolutely. I think those are majority of the things, the the biggest, you know, words of caution I can say with that is, uh, you know, make sure and have a strong understanding with the collar conditioning first. So it's not a surprise, like Kat said, but work on those things separately. You know, you can play little retrieving games in very controlled environments, but when you move to those bigger areas where you're seeing more of this parading, you know, don't be trying to incorporate everything all in one session. If you want to see me try and incorporate a bunch of new things in one session and it come back to bite me in the butt, um, watch uh, the last video that I did with Clutch. I started asking too much and he really said, not ready for this, bro. And uh, we kind of worked through it to kind of save what was going on there. But it made was, a few modifications to the yeah, training session. Yeah, which is a, it's a thing. It's I mean, you got to constantly evolve and, and evaluate. And we want our dogs to move as fast as they possibly can without pushing too much. So, so really great question, and I hope we were able to help you. Um, by answering that. If not, definitely you can check us out on Patreon. It's our online dog training community where we can watch videos of your training sessions and give you more specific feedback because without actually seeing what's going on, we are truly making assumptions based on what we've seen out of a lot of other dogs before. Awesome. All right. So uh, we're going to pull another question here off of YouTube. Again, that's where we're getting these questions. Yawa question. Throw that in the comments and then ask your question on any video on our YouTube channel. So this next question is from GQ Outdoors. So I have a 10 week old puppy and he has been doing great when here, sit and kennel. However, he has decided that he wants to bark a lot before he makes his way to where Mm. we are place training him. Yep. I don't mark when he is barking. He'll bark. I'll ignore. He'll realize he needs to go to his kennel and then I'll mark. Should I continue to just ignore the barking prior to him getting to his place or do you have some other suggestions? So that th- goes back to Questy Pop. I was going to mm-hmm. say, I wonder if you've seen any of Quest's. Mm-hmm. She was a really early, turd. really early training videos with her um, and clicker training. There, there was a couple videos. She's probably the quietest dog we have. She too. is the quietest dog and we she have. Was now. A mouthy she little was She was so demanding when it came to training <laughs> sessions. She just, um, and part of our training session issue, I think, with her was also involving the fact that I'm doing a training session live trying to work with a young puppy, clicker training, as well as explaining what I'm doing to the camera. So a little bit of our momentum would slow down. She'd get impatient and be like, I want to work for my food. You need to keep feeding me. Stop with these interruptions. And she would get mouthy and bark at me. Mm -hmm. Bark, bark. Mom, hurry up. I want to eat some more food. Let's do this. So step one, go to our YouTube channel and bop onto the section that says, Playlist, or even better yet, fastest way to get there, standingstonekennels.com slash links. That's kind of a landing page we created on our own website. Yeah, we haven't mentioned that for a while, so no, I'm glad you brought it up. One. And then you can uh, go down there, it says quests training series, click the link. It'll take you straight to her playlist, and it's definitely in the earlier stages of her training when mm-hmm. we're just starting with clicker training. And we show exactly how we work through it and how we were able to go from 
Um, and, and part of that was, it was, it was kind of a two part process, but we show exactly how we work through it with those. If you watch those first, like, I don't know, six, eight videos. Yeah. Because it is, you're, you're thinking about it properly in a sense of, well, I'm not going to reward them or give them attention for the barking behavior because that's not what I want. Correct. I want them to get on the dog bed. So I'm ignoring the unwanted behavior and rewarding the wanted behavior. And that's typically what we would recommend. Now, if that barking becomes very persistent or it has to happen prior to every rep of going on the dog bed, you're also potentially creating another problem because anything dogs are doing consistently, they're conditioning themselves to. And we don't want your puppy to understand or think that this is part of the sequence. I bark, get on my bed. That's what I'm being asked to do. Mm -hmm. That's how I do this because otherwise they're going to become conditioned that well, this is part of the sequence and it has to happen in order to get the reward. Yes, that's how specific this uh, positive reinforcement aspect of things go, especially when it's the dog's idea. If they come up with it and they're like, all right, so I did this and it was marked, then you're going to see that more and recognizing the fact already that you don't want to be marking when that's happening is ideal. Yeah, so you have to read the situation and if you see it becoming a habit, then we're going to need to interrupt that cycle and I believe what we ended up doing for Quest was keeping the reps closer together, which prevented her from getting mouthy her specifically because her frustration was having to wait. Yes. So we were So able I actually to, picked her up yep. to explain to the camera so that she wasn't barking at me and running around and being crazy. I picked her up so I could explain we're going to keep these reps closer together build that momentum and make sure that we're repping, 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 giving those rewards really consistently and quickly for her. Absolutely. And when we were able to go rep to rep to rep to rep to rep, then end the session, it kind of just conditioned out the need or attempt for her to think that she needed to be barking. Yes. And it was, that was probably one of the last videos that we saw that in because, um, with repping her prior to the next video, it was pretty much taken care of because that positive reinforcement is such a powerful training tool that they learn specifically what I'm truly getting rewarded for. Absolutely. This is a great question. Okay. So this next question, I love their YouTube name, by the way, Nugget Slayer Metal Detecting. Nugget Slayer Metal Detecting. Yes. Yawa question. (laughs) First off, hello, and thanks for what you do for the bird dog community. I have an 11-month-old Brittany that I have been working with all year. He's my first bird dog I've had. The problem I'm running into is he will retrieve bumpers all day. However, while in the field, he won't retrieve a game bird. He will point, run to the bird, confirm it's dead, and then continue on to the next bird. Mm. What do you suggest I do next? Thanks. Well, to start off with, I'm going to say thanks for the thanks. We really enjoy doing this. And if we didn't, we wouldn't continue to do it. Uh, You know, putting out 14 videos a week essentially now takes a fair amount of time. And, uh, you know, I think it's time well spent. So, But to answer your question, uh, this is a good one. I wish that we had a little more background information from you before we just jump into trying to answer it with our, you know, best amount of experience. But... You said your dog loves to retrieve bumpers all day long, but won't retrieve birds in the field. Okay. Have you actually done a bird introduction at home, in the yard, in a controlled environment, Mm -hmm. not during a hunting scenario? It's a valid point. We always do a bird introduction before we go to the field and expect a dog to point, have a bird shot over them, and retrieve it because um, they need to know what a bird is, what it smells like, what feathers feel like in their mouth, as well as, and we get a lot of flack from this, but we do a live bird introduction. Yeah. It has yep. to be done. And people say that we're cruel and we're just doing it for our own amusement. No, I'm not doing it to, because I want to torture a bird. No, I'm doing it so that I can fully prepare my young dog to interact with a live bird in the field and not have a bad situation happen. If the first time a young dog interacts with a crippled bird, which typically ends up being a bigger game bird like a pheasant, Mm -hmm. is in the field when they've never had a live bird in their mouth and that bird is big and scary and flaps and hits them in the face or spurs them, We are potentially going to have a bird shy dog now. Mm -hmm. So to help uh, 
eliminate that opportunity, we do live bird introductions. And with some dogs that are potentially a little less driven and need that boldness and confidence built up, a live bird introduction is really going to help them with that. Absolutely. The next thing that you can probably do is take just a couple small baby steps, if you will, from the bumper to the bird. A couple ways to do that would be just throwing a few, start with one, use some black electrical tape and or whatever color electrical tape, but it's kind of stretchy and it does a good job holding. Take your bumper, wrap that in one or two spots, usually just two spots, one on each end-ish, and then there's some feathers on your bumper, just a few. Yeah, you can clip a wing off or something like that. There you go. Wings are perfect. Then when they get good with that, do another one and then another one and then another one to where you have a bumper now that's completely covered with wings. So essentially you have a winged bumper or getting closer to a bird. It's a lot of feathers. Then you can take and utilize a frozen bird, uh, thaw it out just a little bit so it's a lot firmer and then play fetch with that just like you are with the bumper in that same environment, your backyard or around the yard, whatever. And those are going to be a couple baby steps to help head you in the right direction because uh, it can just be a little bit intimidating for that young dog to go, huh, this is different. It's kind of exciting when it got up, but I don't know what to do with it now. And as soon as you get that to click, then it's all Especially with there. a dog that already loves to retrieve bumpers as much mm-hmm. as it sounds like your dog does. They just need to understand that, hey, I can retrieve these birds just like I can retrieve those bumpers. And it is super fun. Um, and then you can also add an extra little step in there, a little another baby step and take some of those birds that you did hunt mm-hmm. and those fresh killed birds. And you can do some of those retrieves. Um, in the yard, back around the truck, in a controlled environment, not in as thick of cover, where it's a hand thrown and your dog can make a retrieve from hand that way. Excellent. That's a great question. Thanks for asking. All right. What question do we have next? Next question is from Josh Bambach. Bambach. Hey, Josh. Bambach. We don't know how to pronounce your last name. Sorry. Um, so, Yawa question. Hi, Cat and Ethan. I'm curious. What made you guys choose to participate in AKC hunt tests and NAVDA tests over field trials? Does your training change if a customer wants to run their dog in, say, gun dog stakes instead of hunting testing or being a meat dog? Thanks for reading, and I'm really looking forward to the new format. So this was one of the people that said, hey, we like the new one-question, one-video format that you're doing. Cool. So uh, this ultimately is going to be why we chose the testing games that we did and kind of some of the differences between them. First of all, uh, hunt tests are specific to, there's there's two parts to this. You labeled field trials and you labeled tests. Those are two totally different things. And the reason for the biggest difference in them is the tests are just that. They're a test of that dog's individual ability against a standard. If they pass, they pass. Every dog technically could win or pass that day um, on test day. Now, the other aspect of that is a field trial, and the field trial is a competition. doesn't matter if every dog there meets the quote-unquote standard. There's going to be a winner, or I've even seen when they didn't award first place. Yeah, no winner. They said, we didn't like the dogs today, so uh, we're going to give out a third, or maybe it was a second and a third, which there were, you know, I am not an expert in the field trial world as far as all of the things go, but there is a point system. You have to have so many dogs in order for it to be considered a big enough test, a trial, excuse me, to get enough points, and you have to have X number of points to be titled, and There's some kind of formula involved with that, and they're in different stakes and different uh, rules for different breeds and different trials that are out there. So there's a fair amount to the competition aspect of stuff. Um, As far as why we specifically went with the test side of things, one is uh, you ask about a gun dog steak, and a gun dog steak is going to be pretty close for a dog running. I mean, there should be. I mean, that's a that's a foot hunting dog. A lot of times in a gun dog steak, pretty close anyhow. Shouldn't be uh, against things. So, um, but the other two are are pretty good at rating a dog that fits what we utilize the dogs for. I mean, it's a. Um, we're, we're foot hunters and we do the versatility aspect of things where we ask dogs to retrieve out of water. We duck hunt, we 
goose hunt, we which goes upland hunt. more hand in hand with the Navda side Navda. of the testing, yep. because that stands for the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Um, so that is geared more towards versatility with water portions of the test as well as field portions of the test. And then the AKC for our breed is only a field portion of the test. Yes. Now there is some discrepancies and you'll hear stories all day and night about how this dog or that dog was misjudged or the yada, yada, it yada. It everywhere. It's, um, you know, we are humans. Cat is a judge. I am a judge and we are humans and we're going to make mistakes, but what we see is what we can document and we're doing our best to give an accurate picture of what happened that day as well as meet the standard so that it means something we're not just giving stuff away you got to earn it but at the same time we want to see the dogs be successful uh not there to fail dogs so all of those things thrown away now um I personally, if I'm going to be completely honest, I like the ability with a test to say, I know what I'm going there to do. I can prepare my dog to do it. And if my dog does the things that I know they're supposed to do, we're going to come out on top, which would mean a pass for that day or, or a prize. prize with utility test or, a, or with a NAVDA test all the way from the different levels. On the field trial aspect of stuff, it is a competition and it is a competition that is subjectively judged based on the people that are watching your dogs run. So there's going to be differences of opinions on what dogs they like to see or what breed they like to see or what style, style. they like to see or what they want to see that day. And for me, I am competitive and I'm very driven to do what I want to do. And the thought process of me knowing my dog did well and did everything and didn't do anything wrong, but didn't win because its style wasn't what that specific judge liked or something to that effect, I know would just piss me off on a regular basis. So Ethan's brutally honest comment of the day. Mm -hmm. Now on the flip side of that, I've heard the argument from people that say, I don't want a dog that can pass a standard. I want a dog that has enough competitive drive to go out and win something. They're going to put on, uh, you know, they kind of kick into a different gear. You can see a competitive nature. And this is a very true characteristic out of dogs. If you put Nick's on the ground with another dog, he is going to do his damnedest to out hunt that dog, which would mean running beyond it or pushing harder or doing something. You will watch him do it. He's got to be the head dog. He's got to be out front. Absolutely, he does. And that's that competitive drive that I think those people are specifically talking about. So our dogs have it, or some of them more than others, you know, but then you have the flip side of that where, oh, I would say when I ran Vino, um, she's a sweet, sweet little girl. She's a retired female from our program. Vex, Vex is mommy. Yeah, Vex is mommy. And she didn't have as much competitive drive, if you will. She's just happy to be out there doing her thing. And super and cooperative in the sense that she's going to check back in and be like, okay, you're still hunting with me. Cool. Now I'm going out to hunt again. Yeah, which is uh, is honestly more the direction that I would like to see a dog be for what we are trying to produce, which is a family-oriented, versatile hunting companion. Yeah, and so the last part of your question, Josh, was does that change the way that we train dogs um, for, you know, if somebody wants to come in for gun dog steaks instead of hunting tests or being a meat dog. Well, definitely our training program is going to change based on your goals and Correct. your dog. Um, if you're just having a hunting dog, meat dog that needs to be able to point back, retrieve, and, you know, have the basic obedience, we're not going to go through steadiness sequences so that the dog is steady to wing shot and fall and have that level of expectation for the dog. If your dog retrieves naturally, we're not going to look at needing to do any formal retrieving work because your dog is already doing it. And we're not going to have a test or competition that the retrieving has to be done polished, perfect mm -hmm. to get that score that you need. So yes, it's going to change the way that we train the amount of time that it takes to meet those goals as well. 
And I would say the last smidgeny caveat to that is, I mean, if you reach out to us and want us and you say, hey, I want a dog to be a field trial champion, I'm going to say, buddy, we got to set you up with someone else. We will send you somewhere else because we don't have the experience in the field trials. Nor the time to travel and, and trial for a you. dog. Yep. Yep. So um, we have trained a few people for a uh, few dogs for different types of tests. And I do, you know, like, no, 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 we want you to work with our dog. And I say, okay, well, I, I have no experience in this, but I can read the rules and I can do my best. And if you say you want us to do that, I will, I will try and I'll reach out and get some help. But ultimately I'm, I'm not campaigning dogs. So we're not going to be the right person to the finish, right that, trainer dog, to finish that dog out. For that yeah. type of um, It's a great question. It's a really good question. Ooh, that one looks like a fun one. This is our last question, I think. It's a long one though. And there's a lot to it. Okay. Are you ready? Let's do it. So from. Wait, wait, wait. Where did you get this question from? I got this from a comment on one of our other YouTube videos, and they said Yawa question. Awesome. That's so how you I do it, So I knew folks. it was a Yawa question. That's how you do it. And I really wanted to read this one for a couple of reasons. A, I thought it was a really good question, and B, there was another person that said, hey, I second this question. I have these concerns as well. So, Nicholas Cooper, Yawa question. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old Labrador Retriever. I've been training Tim to hunt upland, mainly pheasants. Since the management here in New York is not great, I found the stocked pheasant states like New York usually have heavier cover that is thick and at least four to five feet tall that is never cut or managed. If I plant birds and he knows I have planted them, he is fine about charging into the heavy cover. But when I take him to state stocked hunting spots and tell him to hunt him up or get into the cover, he shuts down. Mm-hmm. He will either hunt way too close or just look at me like he can't believe that I'm asking him to do that. Gotcha. Please help. What should I do? And then I wanted to just read the conversation that was had by the other um, YouTuber, Andrew Hotsman, which is he also a patron? I believe so. For those of you that don't know what that is, uh, patreon.com slash standing stone kennels is an online training community. <clears throat> Excuse me. That we have set up to help anybody that is, you know, and the people that are watching our videos are typically people trying to train their dogs themselves. That is the direct link to Cat and I for assistance where you are struggling. So, so he said, I'll second this. Hasn't happened to me yet, but it is a concern. About half of the stocked areas I hunt are super heavy, but the areas we are training are not. And then Nicholas said back, Yeah, I think I should have trained him in the heavy stuff to start when he was a puppy, but not sure how to go about it now. He loves to hunt, but once the cover gets up to around three to four feet, he shuts down unless he knows something is in there. Also, has no problem whatsoever charging in if I throw a retrieve into the cover. That's a good thing. And then last comment on that was... Um, A reply back from Andrew saying, I have tried to avoid this by taking walks in the insanely thick cover, but she was still very clingy. I finally got a thorn out of my leg from three weeks ago. So the reason that I read through this whole conversation is A, to show that this isn't some situation in question that just one person has. Other people have this question and concern as well. And to point out that if you got a thorn in your leg, there's a very good chance that your dog is going to get beat up in that thick cover too. So it is understandable if there's the potential for them avoiding that thick cover, um, especially when they don't know that a reward is available in there. Yeah. You got to think about it as a sense of, uh, you know, if there's a prize at the end of the rainbow, right? I mean, you're going to try and follow the rainbow. Even through the thick cover. Even through the thick cover. So, um, those Stay were- away from me, lucky charms. So, speaking of Lucky Charms, marshmallows in cereal. Ugh. Who thought that's a good idea? Mm, Do I don't, like I don't remember the last time I've eaten cereal. Whatever. Okay, so. We digress. To start with this, there's a few things going on there. I want to say it's not that abnormal for a dog, especially, not X, especially, excuse me, especially if that dog lacks experience um, it's a, it's a completely normal thing for them to not want to bust into that thick cover. Okay. So don't be surprised. Now on to the, how to help uh, you mentioned in there, I thought maybe I should have started this training in the thick cover when they were younger. No, we need to be able to build good habits of, 
Ooh, is it a lab? Yes. Ah, okay. So starting in thick cover wouldn't be as big of a deal. With a young pointing dog, we want to see what's going on so that we can help them. But even the, the lab aspect of retrievers, flushers, that aspect of things, having lighter cover is going to help be less intimidating. And then working to gradual cover is a good idea, but you have to do it gradually. And it really comes down to experience. The more experience your dog gains and understanding that yes. the birds are, the wild birds, the birds that we're really going to be hunting when we're not training are going to be in that thicker cover. It's just experience. For example, this is a really good example. Our young dogs were from Kansas. Mm-hmm. We have fairly light cover, rolling hills. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it gets super thick in most eh, of the There's a few the places, but I mean, it's it's, it's grass. Grasslands, you know? knee, so, knee, thigh height. You, you know? can get a couple places here and there that are pretty thick. There are some, a few cattaily areas, but for the most part, generally speaking, lighter cover is compared to, compared to what you're talking about. Yeah, so. and so we train in these environments. Lighter cover, you know, thigh high cover, and our dogs have a good understanding of Hey, this is how we find birds. This is how we hunt. This is how we work a field, use the wind, yada, yada. But then we go to some place like South Dakota mm-hmm. in those crazy thick cattail sloughs. Or when you've gone up to Minnesota or Michigan in the grouse woods, we don't have grouse woods around here, guys. No. We have a few trees down the draw. There was a gentleman I talked to on the phone the other day, and he said, You know what uh, a Kansas tree is? Or he said something to the effect of, Talking about, he was driving on, and he was driving on 70, so there's no trees there. You know, there's nothing there. But um, basically calling telephone poles are the only trees we've got in the state of Kansas, which isn't too far from the truth. I mean, really. There's a few trees here and there. It's not overly wooded, but we don't have those type of environments to train in. So we just have to prepare our dogs the best that we can and then take them into those environments and help them be successful there. Correct. And- You're not going to help them be successful if you don't find birds. And that's the hard part of hunting. That's why it's called hunting, not shooting or killing. I had a a question from a patron today specifically about that. Said, well, how do I, hopefully this involves, uh, you know, the Patreon aspect of thing involves hunting assistance too. I said, well, yeah, happy to help. What do we got? And it's, uh, well, he's struggling. We're struggling finding birds on our hunts. And I'm like, the only thing that you can do is find birds. So you got to find areas that have birds or take a trip or do uh, something. And I will say, one good trip can make a young bird dog. One. But when you take that, but they got to get into birds. And when you take our young bird dogs, you know, this is something I think that goes a little bit digressing, but it kind of brings full circle what's happening here. Um, we take our young dogs, almost all of them always make the truck to go to South Dakota. And it's important for them. They learn a ton up there because there's just, a, you know, we guide multiple days in a row. So we'll be up there. I'll be three days on, one day off, uh, six days on, one day, one and a half days off, and then three days on, one day off, three days on, one day off, and come home. So um, it's a lot of days, A, and a lot of birds, B. And then the flip side of that is they kind of move into that um, their prime, if you will, drastically younger in life, where a lot of people would say a three to five-year-old dog is in their prime. And that's just because of the amount of time it takes to get enough birds under their belt to say that you're experienced. Yeah. And our younger dogs have more birds to gain that experience and they learn quickly how to hunt and that they need to hunt hard and that birds are going to be found in that thick cover and that's where they need to go to find birds. And so- we as handlers have to get in there to show them. And that's, that's one it. thing too. Some of these preserves and situations that you get into that aren't as wild-like is, you know, they've got mowed paths and then food plot strips or heavy mm-hmm. cover strips. And, and they that's want where you to stay out of those food plots because they get hunted they don't want so them much. Break them. And, they don't yeah. want them to break down. The dogs can go in there, but you guys walk on the paths. But then the dogs are only going in that thick cover. Um it's easy for them to want to run the paths for sure. Right. And so they need to learn to get into that thick cover and not just walk the paths with you. And if they're not getting into birds and they're feeling bored, they're going to think, why am I wasting my time? Bust and brush. I just am going to walk by dad. Yep. And it takes drastically longer, but even, I mean, I've had dogs that fall into that category where they've got a pretty good idea, but they're not a hundred percent there that, you know, after a while they're like, 
what the hell are we doing out here? I mean, I've been running for two hours and I haven't found a dang thing. They either kind of start mousing a little bit or, um, you know, this is the less experienced dogs I'm talking about, but they start mousing a little bit or they get to that point and they're like, screw it. I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm just going to walk by you or whatever. So it takes the experience and experience is the answer to fixing this, this issue that you're having. Which just means you need to get out, hunt more, um, get into areas where the likelihood of finding birds is a little bit higher, traveling to hunt if you have the opportunity to places that are going to have a lot of birds in a smaller amount of area. Is that all the questions we have for today? That is all the questions that we have for today, I think, if I counted right. Go back and count real quick before we end. Aha, we do have time for one more question. Also, cat can't count, apparently. That's right. Math. Math. Let's get to it. So, Corey Duar, Yawa question. Hey, guys, I have a two and a half year old GSP that has been out hunting quite a bit this year already. I love it. And in the last week or two, he has started to give me a lot of false points. When I walk up on him, I can tell immediately that there is no bird, there is no intensity, head is moving around, tail wagging, versus the intense points I get when locked in on a bird. Could this be from hunting too many species already this year? Sharpies, woodcock, ruffs. He didn't get a lot of wild bird work last year, mostly training and farm birds. Could he just be confused or is he just getting old scent and just needs more experience? Thanks, guys. So that's an absolutely fantastic question. It does kind of tie into the last question that we ask. And I believe that it is primarily experience related, but... There's a lot of factors that go into this, are a though. Lot of factors because you know things that I would like to ask you is: Are you hunting the same property over and over and over? Mm-hmm. Because dogs get really familiar and are very space oriented. So if we, even our dogs that are here for training, if we overtrain in a specific area and don't move birds around enough, they get cautious in the field because they're like, yes. "Found birds here before." found birds here before, and they get that false pointing behavior. Um, the other side of it is that it can be conditioned. So if they kind of false point-ish and you go in and kick around and, and look for And you woe them, it, you're reinforcing. Or you woe them, yep, exactly. And you kind of develop this, we're going to stop here anytime you want to sniff something, and then we're going to play this little game of woe, walk around, kick some stuff, send you on. So that's where we put a huge emphasis in training our young dogs and knowing exactly where birds are at, and then... Once we move into the next environment, experience kind of helps to take over, but I play a game of uh, point it or knock it, buddy. I want you to figure this out. Move on until you realize that was a bird and you need to be staunch and you need to pay attention and you need to know what you're doing. No overpressuring birds. Or that wasn't a bird and move on and go find one already, dang it. And it sounds like you can actually read your dog well enough that you know when it's a false point and when it's an intense point that there is an actual game bird there. Okay. Ign- okay. Yeah. Move ignore them, on. them. Move on. Just walk past them and keep hunting. They're not going to want to stay there on point on nothing mm-hmm. and get left That's in the dust. So not even putting emphasis of, okay, let's go hunt them up. That's just extra verbiage that you don't need. That's going to still put a little more emphasis on the situation that you don't really need. Just ignore it and walk on. Yep. They'll figure it out. And what they need to be able to do is figure it out, which just takes the experience aspect of things. I feel like that problem also is developed. Um, I still need to do it. And I think I'm going to maybe able to, I'm, I'm going to jump out on them here. I think I'm going to team up with uh, good buddy, Ron Spomer on this one, but it's the, your, your dog training hobby is ruining your bird dog. And we talk about it a lot and it's something that's, it's very, very true. Ron is a word magician. He is a word magician and he would make me sound decent. Yeah. Like he is such a good writer. He just has a way with words that you get drawn into the story. You get drawn into the experience and, um, he's got some podcasts right now. So that yeah, he's he just started articles. This is a, yeah, this is a totally side, but it's a good one. So Ron Spomer outdoors, you need to check out his YouTube channel as well as you need to check out his podcast and what he's doing on his podcast is something that's really cool for us that are busy traveling, but still love, uh, you know, articles about the outdoors and hunting and things he is reading all of his old articles for 
podcasts and they take anywhere from 15, 20 minutes to 30, 40 minutes, depending on the length of the article and everything else. But you get to hear his old stories. He's a hell of a storyteller. And he's got a great listening voice. You know, if you love audiobooks, which I listen to audiobooks when I'm traveling all the time, if you've got a crappy narrator, you just want to hit the next Next. story because you can't handle listening to him. Not the case with Ron. So what I would love for you guys to do in this situation is jump over, check out some of his YouTube channel. If YouTube videos are primarily gun hunting related stuff, um, he's got some good ones. Just drop a comment in there. Uh, Standing Stone, if you uh, came from our channel, you were recommended from our channel. Check that out. Now, the next side of it is you need to be bopping over there. If you listen to podcasts at all, go and listen to it. It's fun. He's got some fun stories. They are enjoyable to listen to. Now, may be able to work with him specifically on this article so I can get it done as opposed to me continuing not to write it. Um, But if you are putting too many birds out, those pen-raised birds teach dogs really naughty habits because most of the time they don't move, and that's not normal. That's not real. But he he's already starting to figure it out. If he's not hard, locked up on point, he knows they're not there. He just needs to condition and move on past yeah. it. Yeah, so. and you did you did mention that you didn't get a lot of wild bird experience last year, mostly training in farm-raised birds, mm-hmm. which overdoing that side of thing, the you know, whole year bird dog training hobbies ruin your hunting dog is very, very applicable. And so learning wild birds, wild bird scent, hot scent, cold scent, how to move on on their own is really important. And it's just going to take more time. I wouldn't say that it's because you've been on multiple species. That's actually awesome that you've been on multiple species. So more birds and experience, especially wild birds, the better your bird dog's going to get. Birds make a bird dog. Wild birds make a bird dog. So get on those species. They're going to learn. They're going to differentiate. And the less emphasis you put on him pointing stuff that's not there, because you can read that situation, the better. Absolutely. Well, folks, that is all we have for this week. We are out of time, and I need to be getting into a bag of ruffles from Canada that I can't 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 pronounce pronounce the name of them. But uh, we're going to get moving on with that. Thanks, everybody, for watching. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Cat the Dog Trainer. (laughs) I'm going to have a coffee crisp with the rest of my pumpkin latte. And we will see you in the next video.